Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to have fellowship together and to, to seek after your word and to see what you'd have us to learn from this portion. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. You fools and blind, for where the, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever swears by the gift that is upon the altar, he is guilty. You fools and blind, for whether is it greater the gift or the altar, which sanctifies the gift? Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, or swear, swears by it and all things thereon, and whoever shall swear by the temple, swears by it and, and by him that dwells therein. And he that swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and, and by him that sits thereon. All right, so let's look at this section here. And this is Jesus continuing his discussion about the scribes and Pharisees that we talked about last week and how they kind of nitpicked what was important what wasn't important. And they had a saying that if you swore by the temple, it wasn't a big deal, but if you swore by the gold on the temple, you, you, were, you were bound by your, by your oath. And, you know, explain that? Huh? Well, they would say, you know, we might say something in our day, you know, I swear, on, I swear by God or I swear on the, on the Bible. They would say, I, I make my oath, I swear by the temple. And they go, if you swear by the temple, you're not bound by your, by your oath. If you, but if you swear on the gold in the temple, you are bound by your oath. In other words, it gave them free will to be able to lie. All right? Uh, you know, I'm talking, to, I'm talking to them, I swear by the temple, you know, and, and for the Gentiles, that would be a big deal. You swore by the temple of the God that you're supposed to be worshiping, and to them, it would be a big deal. And they're going, well, no, if you swear by the temple, that's no big deal. But if you swear about the gold on the temple, it's something special. And when he said, I swear by the altar in the temple, he's going, that, they, they thought that was no big deal, but the gift on the altar was important to them. Okay, they're making, basically what is happening here is they're making very fine distinctions between what you, when you had to keep the truth and when you didn't have to keep the truth. And again, this is to a Gentile, you know, you swore by the temple that the offering was put on, that would be a big deal to them, and they would figure that it was a big deal to you, and you know, they were going, no, it's a gift on the altar that's the important part, not, not the altar itself. All right, and so this was the way that they were trying to manipulate people, uh, trying to say, well, I didn't swear by something important. And all through the Bible it says, you know, especially even in the New Testament, it says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And Paul and Jesus both said, don't swear at all. You know, if what you're saying is not true, an oath isn't going to make it any more true. We're pretending to make an oath, which is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Because even to the, the actual person in the street, if they swore by the temple, to them that was important. You know, they were told four times a year that they had to make a trip to Jerusalem to worship God. So to them, the temple was important, not the gold of the temple. You know, if the gold was what was important, all they had to do was scrape some gold off of it and carry it back home with them, and they've got the most important part of the temple at home. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, what the scribes were saying is, no, the temple's not that important. It's the, it's the sanctified gold that's on it that's important. It's not the altar itself. It's the gift that's put on there. And yet you couldn't offer your gift anywhere else. Wouldn't the altar be 
a very important thing. Oh, yeah, and that's what Jesus is saying. He goes, which is more important, the temple which sanctifies the gold or the altar which sanctifies the offering? So in here he's saying exactly what you're saying. He goes, you're looking at the minor thing, and without the altar, the gift means nothing. Without the temple, the gold would mean nothing. And I don't think he was saying, you know, you should swear by those things necessarily. He was saying, you guys have got it all backwards anyway. You know, you're looking at what you should swear by. And for a Christian, when we say something, it should be the truth no matter what. We shouldn't have to go, I swear, to, I swear by God or I swear to God. They're making a big deal out of something. And it's saying, basically, they're saying, I'm not an honest person, so I'm going to try to make you think I'm honest by saying I'm going to swear on something. And in this case, this is exactly what they're doing. Dishonest people are going to be dishonest, no matter what they swear on. And, you know, but we've carried it into our country with, you know, your oath is made on the Bible. And so here we're seeing that Jesus is not saying it's a good thing that you're doing any of these swearing. But if you're going to swear, at least swear on something that, by or on something that's important. Okay? The gold on the temple was nothing without the temple. The, the gift on the altar was nothing without the altar. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, you guys are not even swearing by what's important in the first place. You know, and then he goes, if you swear by heaven, you're swearing by God who is in heaven, because that was another one of their things. We can swear by heaven, but and we're not really being bound by it because we're not talking about God. We're just talking about the stars or the sky or whatever. You know, and Jesus is saying, you all don't know what you're talking about. He says you're to be, and he doesn't go fully there, but he's, if you're going to say something, you're going to. You're to keep it. And this is what Paul goes, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. You don't need to be swearing by anything because if you're a follower of God, you should be a truthful person and keeping your word whether you promise to or not. You know, have you ever met a kid who will say, well, I didn't promise I'd do it. I just, I said I'd do it, but I never promised I'd do it. Uh, well, no, that doesn't really matter. You said you're going to do it. You should be keeping your word. And, you know, and it's not just kids who do that kind of stuff. You know, we get, and in our day and age, it's really bad. You can't take anybody for the word. You better have a contract. It better be ironclad. And your, and your lawyers better be better than their lawyers. And that's because we're so far away from this. And people are just saying, well, you know, I, I, got, I got you. Uh, my lawyers will get me out of it, most of them. And if they don't, then I'll have to pay. I'll have to pay. But the times I win, I've, I've won more than I've lost. And this is the dishonesty that's out there right now. And we talked about it in, in the Pentateuch. God says that, you, that if you're going to tell the truth, you tell the truth, that, the whole truth that you know. And that doesn't mean I tell just enough to be thinking I'm telling the truth. I, I didn't, you know, I, I left out these parts that would incriminate omission. me. Omission is also a lie. Omission is a lie. But the whole point of that is, you know, just the idea of, what is truth? What is, what is the honesty? And here God, Jesus is saying, you know, it's just because you swear by something is not, shouldn't be your binding truth. And very important for us to understand, God is wanting truthful people. He wants us to do what we say. I was raised by a, by a mentality, if you, made a, if you made a statement that you were going to do something, you did it. Even if something else came up that was more important or better for you, you know, you did what you said you were going to do and kept your word. And there was many times when my dad made me do things that I had said I was going to do in spite of something else that had come up later on. If I told somebody I was going to, you know, mow their lawn or something and a youth event came up, I missed the youth event and mowed the yard. 
Now, as I got older, I got smart. I would do the yard a day early <laughs> and go to the youth event both. Still fulfill my word and get to do what I wanted, but you know, this is not what happens in our day. Possibly, as long as you keep that. But if you do that too often, then people are going to start, you're not a person of your word because you keep postponing everything. Uh, and when I was trained, you keep your word even to your hurt. And that means that even if you had tickets to the World Series game and you made a promise to do something else, you lost your World Series <laughs> tickets. Now, the World Series tickets wouldn't mean anything to me, let's say Super Bowl tickets. This is the way our world is going to a place where if somebody says something, you don't know whether they're gonna keep their word or not. And Jesus here is saying, it doesn't matter what you swear by, you're to be honest. And don't look for a loophole to get out of it. And that's what they were doing. And we've talked about how the scribes and Pharisees had all kinds of rules. They were real good at keeping the rules by their loopholes. And they had all kinds of loopholes uh, that they would, they would end. They, you're supposed to honor your mother and father. So what did they say? Well, everything is Corbin. It's given to God. So mom and dad, I can't give you anything because it all belongs to God. They could do whatever they wanted with it. But, they, you know, but when they died, it was supposed to go to God. And I would guarantee they almost spent everything before, before God got it at the end of their life. But they would use it as an excuse not to honor mom and dad or grandma and grandpa and help them. They would, you could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath day away from home. So they would tie a rope to home, go, go out to the end of the rope, tie another rope to that and say, well, I'm still at home. I'm, I'm tethered to home. Okay, I've gone, I've gone 5,000 yards with rope tied to my home, but I've, I, haven't, I haven't left home yet. Okay, now if anybody else had done that, they'd go, you've left home. But when they did it, they were still tethered. That or they would, every, every distance, they would put something that belonged in their house and say, this is, this is my home, and start another distance. I mean, they played little games all the time to say, I'm obeying your law, God, but not really. So I'm wondering if they have, the question I have is that if they have, they have enough, they have more trouble making Christians out of Jews or making Christians out of it's easier to make a Christian out of somebody who didn't believe anything than somebody who believed, like, say, Paul did, or, you know, had a strong, had a strong belief. It's easier to teach somebody that is, that is like, completely open. It's not necessarily easier in all aspects. The Jews were easy to, easier to reach because they understood who God was, and you didn't have to teach them what God was, and, and that they were sinners. When you got to, the, to a Gentile, you had to, number one, explain who God was. But they understood God was. They didn't no, you had to understand who God was, not all the false gods. God yes. Was, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't, they didn't accept Jesus, but that's, that was the easy yeah. part. Again, it depends on what part you're looking at. Uh, Ken Ham and, and many evangelists have said that when you leave the United States and go, talk, go preach, we say the word God, and even in America, we still pretty much understand who God is. Even the you know, person who's not a Christian usually pretty much understands who God is. You go to Japan, and you say God, and their first thought is, which God are you talking about? So now you have to go, the God who created all things, who has rules for everybody, and list, list all the, you know, a bunch of attributes of God to tell them what you mean when you say the word God. You know, and then, yes, it's easier once they make that decision to follow that God, 
But you know, you've got to tell them who God is. You've got to teach them what sin is. You've got to then make them understand that they're guilty of sin and that, that sin has punishment. There's a lot of things you have to teach a non-Jewish Christian mindset when you're trying to evangelize them. Now, once you get them to turn to God, it's pretty easy because there's not a whole bunch of legalistic garbage on their, on their plate to get rid of. But it's harder to get them there. For the Jew or the Christian, they already know who God is. They already know what sin is. They already know that they deserve punishment for, for violating sin. All you got to do now is get them to accept Jesus Christ. And then you've got to take and pull away all the legalistic garbage out of their life and get them into grace. And this is, you know, and your question is a good question. Which one is easier to reach? Both and neither. Because both have issues that have to be dealt with. One is the issues to get them there. And the other one is not to get them there, but to teach them how to live after they're there. You have to change their, their world thinking, whatever it is. Well, you're going to have to do that no matter what. Either way, yeah. either way you're changing the way they yeah. think. You're either changing their opinion of who God is and then what God requires because of who he is, or you're changing their attitude of what, how you respond to God. Uh, somebody who's been raised in a church who is a Jew believes that you have to do right, you know, good, good things to please God unless they've got a you know, good foundation in their Christianity. And then you spend the rest of your life teaching them that the laws, even though they're good, are not what gets them to heaven and not what pleases God. So you're, you're teaching a whole thing. Now the person, the person who you're trying to bring to Christ outside of that mentality, first off, you've got to teach them who God is. And, and usually by the time you get done teaching them who God is, they're ready to accept grace. And they usually don't have this huge amount of works mentality on their mind to have to get rid of. But you still have to teach them how to think with God. And that's what all of our growth with God is all about, is learning to think the way God thinks. And that's what all the teaching is all about. That's what getting into the Word is all about, is teaching people, this is what you believe that's not right. Get rid of it. Here's what God teaches on it. And it takes time. It takes a long time for people to do that. And the sad thing is even people who have grown up in church oftentimes have not been trained real well on to think with God. They've had rules piled on them and seen it so many times that people have had rules placed on them. You know, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, you know, you know, do this, do this, do this, and don't do these things, and then you're going to be okay with God. And say, follow these rules. That is part of what it means to be a Christian, is to learn to think with God. And we spend the rest of our life learning to think the way he does. Little things like, what is telling the truth? Well, the world will tell us, as long as you don't outright lie, you've told the truth. Yes, I went, to the, I went to the store. I had the gun and I robbed the, robbed the store, but I'm not telling you that part. You know, I'm just telling you I went to the store. Yes, I went to the store. Uh, you know, I haven't lied to you. I just left out a whole lot. <laughs> okay, and I know that's a far-fetched story, but you know, that's kind of what we do all the time. How much of the truth can I tell you before I look bad or somebody gets in trouble by, by continuing the story and we stop? You know, we stop, and as you said, omission, in God's eyes, omission is a lie. To a parent, when the kid doesn't tell them, leaves out the story, we consider that they've lied. So David kind of did that with, um, when the guy came to him about the child. Human nature, it's part of, yeah. part of the human nature to, to not tell the whole truth, which is why God in Deuteronomy said that you're to tell the whole truth. Verse 23, What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have admitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, these ought you have to have done and not leave the others undone. You blind 
guides you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. So let's look at this one. He goes, you describes your your tithing all the way down to the to your number of mint and the little anise seeds and your and your little seeds of cumin and you're not keeping the big things. You're not showing mercy and grace to people. And you know, this is kind of in, in judgment. You know, he's going, you're you're being so meticulous, you know, you're making sure that you give one tenth of every little tiny cumin seed and every little tiny anise seed, and yet you won't show God's mercy and, judge, you know, and, and judgment to people. In their mind, they were fulfilling the law. That, that was the easy. And it, people love doing the easy stuff. Giving a tenth of everything, that was easy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. For one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four. You know, God, you get every tenth one. Piece of cake. I can do that. No problem. To show somebody mercy, that's a big deal. To not make them pay for something that they deserve to be paying for, in punishment or whatever else, and be able to show them mercy, that's a different heart attitude altogether. To give somebody grace when they deserve punishment is a different mindset altogether. And we want to be careful. I mean, he's saying, you know, you're, you're, doing, you're doing great on the offering part. The easy part, you know, you, you made $100, you gave God 10 Good, thank God, good job. But now you're being mean and, and hurting the widows and not helping them because you gave your 10 you gave your tenth to God, and you're not helping the widows. You're not helping those who need in any way, shape, or form. You know, you've done one side, great, you've fulfilled that, but you're not doing the rest and the more important things. And this is why, you know, I've left that definition of forgiveness on the PowerPoint in the morning for as long as I have, because forgiveness is so important for people. You know, we could be giving God our tithes. We can be reading our Bible every day. We can come, come into church, but if we're not learning to forgive people, that's the way to your matter, learning to forgive, learning to give mercy, learning to show love to people. And if we're doing everything that God says, you know, somehow we're doing manage, you think we're doing all the Ten Commandments, all the 613 commandments even, but not loving people and, and being forgiving and, and being merciful. Really, we're not keeping any of them for all practical purposes because there's so many in there that say take care of one another. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're doing a great job. You're, you know, you're, giving, you're giving a tithe on the littlest things out there, but you're forgetting the most important things. He goes, you blind guys, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. <laughs> you know, and this is basically what he's saying. And this was a, uh, you're making a big deal out of, out of uh, small things, and you're avoiding them with a great passion, and then you're violating big things. That's not, quite. not quite the same thing. Basically, it goes back to what he said before. You, uh, you're tithing of your littlest, tiniest things, but you're not taking care of the big things. You're not taking care of the widows. You're not taking care of the orphans. You're not, you know, you'll walk right past the, the unhealthy and not give alms. But Jesus is trying to teach them it's much deeper. It goes back to when he says, you know, if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in, in your heart already. If you've been angry with a brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart, you know, and because they would, their attitude was, well, I didn't do it. I really wanted to. I wanted to kill that person. I wanted to have adultery, but I didn't do it, God, so I'm okay. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm taking it to another stand, another level. You, you have got an evil heart, and you need to understand your heart is evil. Well, God knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows the intent of our hearts. So for him, it's a really big deal to 
yes, I'm a really good person outwardly, but man, if I could be doing the things I've been thinking, wow, you'd, you'd really have, if you knew what I was thinking, I'd be in trouble. There's, there's a sign on one of the boards in one of the offices, and it's got a little, uh, one of those guys in Des uh, Despicable Me, the yellow guys, but you know, the me's or me's or whatever they're called. And it goes, it's a little box, it goes, if you knew what I was thinking, you'd back up very quickly and start running. Yeah, and I see that and I, you know, I don't really particularly care for it, but at the same time, that's exactly what we're talking about here. I could, you know, you may think that I'm okay, I may be acting okay, but if you really knew what I was thinking, you'd be seeing how really awful I was. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about how could I decapitate this person and get away with it? Now, how could I do this and get away with it? And this is what he's saying. You're straining it that. You're, you're making it look like you're doing all these little things perfectly, but your heart is not in it. Your heart is far from God. And this is where people are quite frequently. People who say they're a Christian and don't live like Christians are doing the same thing a lot of times. They're trying to make everybody think they're a Christian, but in their heart, they're really not drawing close to God. And that's what he's saying. You know, hey, you're, you're paying attention to these little tiny things. You, know, you, you won't, you won't uh, eat something because you, you might eat a gnat, which is unclean, but you're swallowing a camel, which is unclean. You know, both of these animals are unclean in their mindset. And they would be very careful to strain their food and not eat a, wash their food and vegetables really well so they didn't accidentally eat a gnat. And yet he's saying, but you're also, you're out there eating a really big sin in, your, in the process. And this is something that we need to be very careful because it is really easy to get into this, even as Christians, where we make everybody think we're being obedient to God, but man, if you just knew what we were doing on our, on our own, you know, or not doing, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, which means, you know, caring for people and helping them out and doing the things that you can, you know, because I've heard, I've even heard the comment, well, I've given my tithe, I don't need to help this person. Okay, well, that's wonderful, but God still says we're supposed to help one another if we can. Now, it's one thing, if you don't have the money, you've given your tithe and all your money is gone beyond that, then yeah, you've done all that you can. But if you've given your tithe and and you have a whole bunch left over and you're saying, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you, then there's a problem with where, where you're at. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're, you're looking good. You're, you're, you're being very good in the little tiny things, but you're missing the big picture. Going back to David, you know, it's like he's committed murder and adultery and he's making everybody think he's done, done okay. Nathan is sent to him with this little story to show him that God knows what you've done. Because God always knows what we've done and he's going to reveal it and, and, and name it in front of people if we don't deal with it. And this is what it says, be sure your sin will find you out. God gives us every opportunity to repent. And if we don't want to repent, he's going to make it known. And just hourly, like where everybody can see it, like TV. Depends a lot of it, depends on your influence. If you have very small influence, only a few people will know. The, the higher your influence is, the more people are going to know. We need to be careful about pushing our beliefs on other people. Yeah. And when we look at what God says is what's important on all of this. And he's saying, you know, you're paying attention, you're trying to put, you're trying to pay attention to the littlest things, but you're not dealing with important things. This is something that is so important for us. If we avoid the appearance of evil, you're not going to have these problems. And we've got to be very careful. I don't like being in the office, you know, with a woman unless those windows are opened up so people can at least see in and know, hey, you know, there's obviously nothing going on. The, the drapes are open. If anybody wanted to, they could be able to see what was going on because it's important. 
we've got to keep God's standard of saying, you know, don't even put the appearance of evil on there because people's mouths can run even if nothing happens. Again, the whole idea of straining it in that, you know, a little tiny thing and then swallowing camels of huge problems because you're not paying attention to the, what you should be paying attention to. Verse 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, and within are full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisees, first clean that which is within the cup and the platter, and the outside of them may be clean also. So in other words, clean the outside of the dishes, but not the inside. You know, hey, my, my plates, my, my cups look really good. My pans look really good. You know, don't look, don't look at the mold inside them, but you know, they, they look really good. Is this kind of a metaphor of what's in your heart? In many ways, yes. Because that's exactly what they were doing. They were cleaning the outside, making the outside look good, but their heart was full of, with extortions and envies and excess. And that's where he's exactly what he was going at. You know, you're, you're looking good, but you're, but inside, you are nothing but filth. And this is something that we need to be very careful of that we don't get wrapped up in ourselves. You know, hey, everybody, look how good I am. And we see it all the time, and I know it happens. People, you know, husband and wife got in a fight on their way to church, but when they get to church, they're all smiles and, hi, honey, and, you know, we're, we're, we're okay, and as soon as they leave church, you're back to fighting again. But, you know, don't let anybody know in the church that we're having a bad day. You know, we're going we're gonna to make everybody in the church think we're a perfect, perfect family. And I'm not saying you come into church and, you know, dump out all your problems to the church. But if everything is all, you know, look how good I am and trying to make yourself look all perfect and everything, you've got a problem. Didn't Jesus ask that question, why do you call me good? Well, he asked, you know, good master, what, why, you know, and his question was, why do you call me good? There is only one good. And also, he's going, are you really, are you really, no, that's not what he was talking in that case. In that case, he's saying, you know, are you really calling me God? Because only God is good. So basically saying, who, basically you're just asking that guy, who, who are you really saying I am? Not, you know, you said I'm good. Are you really trying to say that I'm God? Or are you just trying to butter me up and flatter me? Uh, no, that, that doesn't have the same impact as this, as this statement does. Good, good thought, but it's... <laughs> so in other words, he's saying here, as you said, you're, you're making your life look good. You've cleaned up the outside really good, but on the inside, you're just a stinking, stinking corpse. Verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are full of dead man's bones, and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So here he's going exactly what we just said. You make the tomb on the outside look really good. You've plastered it, you've painted it, it, it looks very pretty, but inside is still a bunch of dead man's bones. And this was done in the Jewish place a lot of times. If you had enough money, you plastered up the entrance to the to the tomb, you made it look really pretty, and uh, and we even see it today in mausoleums. You know, you you build this great big beautiful edifice, and you put the bones of the of the people in little little drawers or or in there, and everything looks good, but it's still full of dead man's bones. It's still a grave, <laughs> even though it looks beautiful. It's still a grave, and that's what Jesus is saying. You're you're dead, but you're making it look you're making it look good, but you're dead. 
And this is something we need to be very careful about because we like to do this kind of stuff. We're full of deadness in our life and we want people to think about, you know, look at me, I'm really, I got it all together. I am, I am so special and I've got, I've got my life all together. You know, you know don't, don't, look, don't look behind the door, but... <laughs> you keep eating up appearances. And this is part of what happens in the world, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, I've got to have the newest, greatest. I've got, you know, my neighbor has this, my best friend has this. I've got to have it also so that I'm not looking like I'm being left behind. And we do it as Christians a lot. Well, you know, so-and-so is really a good Christian. They don't do this and that, so I guess I better not do that and this and that as well. And your heart's not in it. You're not doing it for the right reason. They're hopefully doing it for the right reason. You do it just because you think it's what people want to see and, and how you think you're supposed to act. And all you're doing is making a white whitewashed sepulcher and you're full of dead man's bones saying I really wish I could do this but a good Christian doesn't do this and this is the problem with all these rules but it also it's just a human nature thing you know I am going to look more righteous than you Cain and Abel are a great example Abel gives an offering by faith of blood which God said to do Cain comes along and takes the works of his flesh his own hands and says God I want to give you what I have done. And God says, well, I wanted blood. You know, we do this often. God, here is, here is all that I can do for you. I know you want my flesh crucified and you want to, want to see the death of my, my flesh and then you working in me, but God, here's, my, here's all that I can give you. This is my works. And God says, nope, I don't accept that. When we look at the widow's might, you have the scribes and Pharisees putting in huge amounts of money. She comes along and just throws a couple pennies in and God says she's given more than all the scribes and Pharisees combined because she gave all that she had. They gave out of their abundance and their excess. You know, if you, have, if you give $100 you know, out of, out of $10,000, you may think you're giving a lot of money, but you really haven't given much in a, in, a, in a percentage basis. But you come along and all you've made is $200 and you give $100, equal amounts of money, but that $100 is a bigger sacrifice to that person with two or $300 than the person who had $1,000. You know, it was just a drop in the bucket to them. It was a huge amount to the person who's not making much. Well, it's not what he asked for. I'm, I'm just, it's kind of, I guess, from a worldly perspective, from a worldly, worldly perspective, he offered a human sacrifice, which is what the world and false religions ask for all the time. But it's not what God asks for. Cursor to Nimrod's sacrificial system. Yeah, Nimrod sacrificed humans and not, not animals to God or to a God. <laughs> one, of the, one of the, Jesus is a sacrifice because he is the Lamb of God. But not in, that but not in a, not in the way that Satan tries to make the false religions in their human sacrifice. Human sacrifice has been part of false religions forever, all the way back to Nimrod's day. And most, most deities re required a human sacrifice for the ultimate blessing. And usually a child was even better, but uh, a child, virgin, and then any, any other human sacrifice was acceptable. But it was in that order. Children first, virgins, and then, and then any human sacrifice. And because ch children, will have the potential to grow up honoring God, the virgin would no longer be, be uh, able to have righteous children and then anybody else just because Satan, Satan hates people. 
Abortion is a form of human sacrifice. It's not really looked that way, but you know, actually, in many cases, I've been hearing a lot of reports from the newer abortionists. They're they're actually talking about it being the ultimate sacrifice to, to to the god of you know pleasure and everything, and they're using those kind of terms. It's coming out to be exactly what it was back in the days of Moloch and and Baal. You know, you offered your children as a as a sacrifice to the god. Uh, we just do it before they're out of the womb now. Uh, and it's usually to the God of pleasure. I'm not ready to have a kid. I can't afford to have a kid. You know, in terms of how they got it to happen is, you know, the kid might have a deformity. Uh, it's just, you know, it was a case of rape or whatever. But in all the different abortions, those are the very rare reason for abortion. One in four say, I just don't, I just don't want to have this kid. They use, they use abortion as a form of birth. It's like everything else that's done by the world. They use the worst case scenario to get something to happen and then it opens the floodgates for everything else. Because uh, the idea, abortion was sold on the idea that we're gonna stop, stop children being born from rape, we're gonna stop children from being born that are deformed. And great, sounds good, you know, still murder, but it sounds like, a, at least it sounds reasonable to those who aren't gonna accept that it's murder. But in practice, it's used as a form of birth control. I can't afford this kid. I, I either don't want this kid. I'm not ready for a family. I don't love the person that, 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 that is the father of this baby, so we're just not going to have this baby. And that's the majority of all abortions. And in, so they're just a sacrifice to the god of pleasure. Who was Moloch? The god of pleasure and, and wealth. We're still offering our sacrifice to the same god. We just haven't named him in, this, in the abortion industry. But it's still the same offering. I want my pleasure, so I gotta get rid of this kid because this kid will keep me from having pleasure. You know, same, same exact thing. I, I, need to keep, I need to put my job first, so I'm gonna get rid of this kid. God of Moloch, the God of success in the business. You offered your, your children to Moloch to be successful in business. You know, we're still worshiping the same God. We just don't have a name for him like we used to. But it's still the same God being worshiped. You know, nothing new under the sun. You know, it, it's still going on, still happening. And we're starting to hear people talking those, those exact words. You know, you've got to sacrifice your kids so you can, can have this pleasure. You can have your, your, your God in your life to do these things. And it's kind of interesting how as we get closer and closer to the end times, we're starting to talk more and more about sacrifice and, and worshiping of the of these things, you know, because it's coming right back out. Nothing new under the sun. We're returning to the days before of Noah, and all the idols are starting to be propping back up. And we're starting to hear people wanting to talk about sacrifices other than the Jews. You know, we've got lots of places that want to sacrifice animals and stuff to their gods and use altars. It's kind of an interesting world when you think about what's going on in the religious side of things because we're reverting back to what we're supposed to have outgrown. When Christianity held sway over most of the world, things were put under God and in God's way. Uh, for all of Europe and, and America, we've been under the sway of Christianity. Christianity changed this world under the Roman Empire. It turned the world upside down. And it was that way for almost a millennia where pretty much Christianity held sway. Now, granted, much of it was watered down Christianity, but people 
accepted that you had one wife and one man for a marriage, that you didn't have a whole bunch of mistresses out there all over the place. You, your kids were worthy of, of being protected. Uh, orphanages popped up to protect kids. Hospitals protect to, to heal people. You know, we talk about in the Roman and, and Greek days, if you got hurt in battle, you'd be left behind by the army to die or live. If, if you were strong enough to live, great. If not, you deserve to die anyway. Who cared? Christianity comes along and says, people have innate value because they're created in the image of God. Therefore, those who are sick and, and need help need to be helped. And it changed the world, at least the European world. You know, women have rights in, the, in Europe and America that they have nowhere else. Is it perfect rights? No. <laughs> but try, try being a woman in Asia or Middle East or most African countries. They're still, they're still property in a lot of those countries. You're worth whatever you brought into the marriage to, to enrich the husband. You know, I'm not going to say we're perfect in this country because we're far from perfect in, in dealing with interracial relations and, and male-female relations and all that. But man, we've, we are so far ahead of the rest of the world and we want to be very careful in how we deal with people and what we, what we say and act on because God wants us to be so much more than we are anyway. One thing that really bothers me is, and it started back again, it started going away, the churches would have, were integrated, and now we're starting to see churches start splitting them back apart again, and it bothers me. You know, you have a Chinese church, a Korean church, a, a Spanish church, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you have white and black churches still, you know, and it just, you know, they're not quite totally segregated. You're free to go to any other church you want, but they're starting on purpose to divide ourselves. You know, and the idea is, well, they've got special needs. I've got to be able to minister to their special needs. You know, I don't know. My Bible says the same thing, whether it's in Spanish or German or, or English or Korean or Japanese. It pretty much says the same thing. I don't know why I need to split my people up to, to minister God's word. And the sad thing is pushing to build Spanish churches, Spanish-speaking churches. You know, I just have a problem with it. I understand that there's a language barrier that needs to be worked out, but there's ways you can work around this language barrier without building a church. And on one side of the coin, I understand what they're trying to do, but it still bothers me because it's reminiscent of the, of the 40s and 50s and, and eight, late 1800s where you segregated your churches, bothered at the same time as I see it. I understand why they're doing it, they're separating, they're separating people that should be drawn together. And there's ways to do it. You can have interpretation areas. You can have translation areas. You can, you can have two preachers up there you know, and, and translate both languages as you go along. There's all kinds of ways that it can be done without separating the church. And I'm, and I'm bothered by it. And like I say, I understand what they're doing. I understand why they're doing it. But it's too reminiscent to me of when this church was segregated. And it's a sad place because God says we're one. We're one body. We're one people. All, and it doesn't matter what language you speak. Your needs are still the same needs as every other language that's out there, that, you know, every other people group that's out there. We're supposed to be one body, not separated into all these. I mean, Paul says that there's neither Greek nor Jew nor 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 Scythian, and he went down a long list of nationalities that says we're all one body. We're not supposed to be in multiple churches because of our nationality. 
Why are we separating the body when it should be coming together? Satan loves the body being separated. Well, it'd be easier for us to follow. It'd be harder for us to come back together when we get to hard times because we've segregated ourselves again. And, it bring, and once you start segregating yourself, it's hard to bring people back together. This is the important thing is, are we willing to be convicted and then change and repent? And this is a hard thing for a new Christian or a non-Christian. Non-Christians aren't going to do it at all because they're going to feel convicted. And that's our job then to try to un get them to understand grace and mercy. And I would hope that people understand the grace and mercy side of this message, you know, because we're not trying to, to bash them and make them feel bad about their sin other than to get them to God. <laughs> but we're not trying to say, you know, because like I said, if we were to kick out everybody who sins, this church would be empty. Because yeah. I couldn't even come in. So, you know, none of us would be here. So, and we've all been there where it's like, okay, pastor, you know, how did, how did you know all this? Now, I've been around long enough to know that he wasn't spying on me and nobody was, you know, in there, this Holy Spirit ringing the message. But, you know, it scares a lot of people who are new to a church when all of a sudden their sin is being talked about and sometimes in very, very graphic ways that it's like, uh, was he, you know, who's been talking to him? Uh, and, you know, we want to be careful with it all. We want to be able to name sin and call it sin, but not try to condemn their sin. I, wanted, I want, to, the right word is I'm trying to bring conviction into people's lives so they will turn to God, not can people, get can people so condemned that they turn away from God. And that's Satan's goal. His, his goal is to condemn people. It's human nature, and that's, that's why we have to be very careful about how loving we are and, and try to make sure people understand there's also the love of God and the mercy and the grace of God. And when I call it a sin, it bothers them. It's supposed to. Because God wants you to repent of your sin and turn to him and get victory over your sin. And until you will acknowledge that it's a sin, you will never get victory over it. And anytime you start slipping away from God, you're slipping away from the power that truly has victory over sin. And once you take God out of the picture, you know, it's hard to get victory over anything because it's human nature and all the other things that go involved with it. And we start dealing with the flesh, and as long as we start getting to the, where the flesh is not the flesh and it's not sin, it's just something I'm trying to get victory over. And if we start calling things sin as they really are, then people will be more motivated if they care to stop doing it. Uh, but if I think that I'm just sick, I'm addicted, I have just a sickness, and I'm not as motivated to get out of something, and, you know, the day I call it a sin, that changes it. That changes my outlook on it. All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. And Lord, help us to live the way you want us to live and be an example and, and call sin, sin, and change our, the way that we live and to match what you want. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.